This is Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. This is part two of the episode with George Saunders reading his story, 10th of December, with a song written in response by Amanda Shires. Here's George Saunders with the second half of 10th of December. Eber jog hobbled out of the woods and found no kid, just black water and a green coat, his coat, his former coat out there on the ice. The water was calming already. Oh, shit. Your fault. Kid was only out there because of... Down on the beach near an overturned boat was some ignoramus, lying face down, on the job, lying down on the job. Must have been lying there even as that poor kid... Wait, rewind. It was the kid. Oh, thank Christ. Face down like a corpse in a Brady photo. Legs still in the pond, like he'd lost steam crawling out. Kid was soaked through, the white coat gone gray with wet. Eber dragged the kid out. It took four distinct pulls. He didn't have the strength to flip him over, but turning the head at least got the mouth out of the snow. Kid was in trouble. Soaking wet, ten degrees. Doom. Eber went down on one knee and told the kid in a grave, fatherly way that he had to get up. Had to get moving or he could lose his legs. He could die. The kid looked at Eber, blinked, Stayed where he was. He grabbed the kid by the coat, rolled him over, roughly sat him up. The kid's shivers made his shivers look like nothing. Kid seemed to be holding a jackhammer. He had to get the kid warmed up. How to do it? Hug him? Lie on top of him? That would be like popsicle on popsicle. Eber remembered his coat, out on the ice, at the edge of the black water. Ugh. Find a branch. No branches anywhere. Where the heck was a good fallen branch when you... All right, all right, he'd do it without a branch. He walked 50 feet down shore, stepped onto the pond, walked a wide loop on the solid stuff, turned to shore, started toward the black water. His knees were shaking. Why? He was afraid he might fall in. Ha, dope, poser. The coat was 15 feet away. His legs were in revolt. His legs were revolting. Doctor, my legs are revolting. You're telling me... He tiny stepped up. The coat was ten feet away. He went down on his knees, knee walked slightly up, went down on his belly, stretched out an arm, slid forward on his belly, bit more, bit more, then had a tiny corner by two fingers. He hauled it in, slid himself back via something like a reverse breaststroke, got to his knees, stood, retreated a few steps, and was once again 15 feet away and safe. Then it was like the old days, getting Tommy or Jody ready for bed when they were zonked. You said arm, the kid lifted an arm. You said other arm, the kid lifted the other arm. With the coat off, Eber could see that the boy's shirt was turning to ice. Eber peeled the shirt off. Poor little guy. Person was just some meat on a frame. Little guy wouldn't last long in this cold. Eber took off his pajama shirt, put it on the kid, slid the kid's arm into the arm of the coat. In the arm was Eber's hat and gloves. He put the hat and gloves on the kid, zipped the coat up. The kid's pants were frozen solid. His boots were ice sculptures of boots. You had to do things right. Eber sat on the boat, took off his boots and socks, peeled off his pajama pants, made the kid sit on the boat, knelt before the kid, got the kid's boots off, he loosened the pants up with little punches and soon had one leg partly out. 
He was stripping off a kid in tender-gree weather. Maybe this was exactly the wrong thing. Maybe he'd killed a kid. He didn't know. He just didn't know. Desperately, he gave the pants a few more punches. Then the kid was stepping out. Eber put the pajama pants on him, then the socks, then the boots. The kid was standing there in Eber's clothes, swaying, eyes closed. We're going to walk now, okay? Eber said. Nothing. Eber gave the kid an encouraging pop in the shoulders like a football thing. We're going to walk you home, he said. Do you live near here? Nothing. He gave a harder pop. The kid gaped at him, baffled. Pop. Kid started walking. Pop, pop. Like fleeing. Eber drove the kid out ahead of him, like cowboy and cow. At first, fear of the popping seemed to be motivating the kid, but then good old panic kicked in and he started running. Soon Eber couldn't keep up. Kid was at the bench. Kid was at the trailhead. Good boy, get home. Kid disappeared into the woods. Eber came back to himself. Oh boy, oh wow. He had never known cold, had never known tired. He was standing in the snow in his underwear near an overturned boat. He hobbled to the boat and sat in the snow. Robin ran. Past the bench and the trailhead and into the woods on the old familiar path. What the heck? What the heck had just happened? He'd fallen into the pond? His jeans had frozen solid? Had ceased being blue jeans? Were white jeans? He looked down to see if his jeans were still white jeans. He had on pajama pants that, tucked into some tremendoid boots, looked like clown pants. Had he been crying just now? I think crying is healthy, Suzanne said. It means you're in touch with your feelings. Oh, that was done. That was stupid, talking in your head to some girl who in real life called you Roger. Dang, so tired. Here was a stump. He sat. It felt good to rest. He wasn't going to lose his legs. They didn't even hurt. He couldn't even feel them. He wasn't going to die. Dying was not something he had in mind at this early in age. To rest more efficiently, he lay down. The sky was blue. The pines swayed. Not all at the same rate. He raised one gloved hand and watched it tremor. He might close his eyes for a bit. Sometimes in life, one felt a feeling of wanting to quit. Then everyone would see. Everyone would see that teasing wasn't nice. Sometimes with all the teasing, his days were subtenable. Sometimes he felt he couldn't take even one more lunchtime of meekly eating on that rolled-up wrestling mat in the cafeteria corner near the snap parallel bars. He did not have to sit there, but preferred to. If he sat anywhere else, there was the chance of a comment or two, upon which he would then have the rest of the day to reflect. Sometimes comments were made on the clutter of his home, thanks to Bryce, who had once come over. Sometimes comments were made on his manner of speaking. Sometimes comments were made on the style faux pas of Mom, who was, it must be said, a real 80s gal. Mom. He did not like it when they teased about Mom. Mom had no idea of his lowly school status, Mom seeing him more as the paragon or golden boy type. Once he'd done a secret rendezvous of recording Mom's phone calls just for the reconnaissance aspect. Mostly they were dull, mundane, not about him at all. Except for this one with her friend Liz. I never dreamed I could love someone so much, Mom had said. I, I just worry I might not be able to live up to him, you know? He's so good, so grateful. That kid deserves... That kid deserves it all. Better school, which we cannot afford. 
some trips like abroad, but that is also uh, out of our price range. I, I just don't want to fail him, you know? That's all I want from my life, you know, Liz? To feel at the end like I did right by that magnificent little dude. At that point, it seemed like Liz had maybe started vacuuming. Magnificent little dude. He should probably get going. Magnificent little dude was like his Indian name. He got to his feet and, gathering his massive amount of clothes up like some sort of encumbering royal train, started toward home. Here was the truck tire. Here the place where the trail briefly widened. Here the place where the trees crossed overhead like reaching for one another. Weave ceiling, Mom called it. Here was the soccer field. Across the field, his house sat like a big, sweet animal. It was amazing. He'd made it. He'd fallen into the pond and lived to tell the tale. He had somewhat cried, yes, but had then simply laughed off this moment of mortal weakness and made his way home, look of ribe amusement on his face, having, it must be acknowledged, benefited from the much-appreciated assistance of a certain aged... With a shock, he remembered the old guy. What the heck? An image flashed of the old guy standing bereft and blue-skinned in his tidy whities like a POW abandoned at the barbed wire due to no room on the truck, or a sad, traumatized stork bidding farewell to its young. He'd bolted. He'd bolted on the old guy. Hadn't even given him a thought. Blimey, what a chicken-shittish thing to do. He had to go back, right now, help the old guy hobble out. But he was so tired. He wasn't sure he could do it. Probably the old guy was fine. Probably he had some sort of old guy plan. But he'd bolted. He couldn't live with that. His mind was telling him that the only way to undo the bolting was to go back now, save the day. His body was saying something else. It's too far. You're just a kid. Get mom. Mom will know what to do. He stood paralyzed at the edge of the soccer field like a scarecrow in huge flowing clothes. Eber sat slumped against the boat. What a change in the weather. People were going around with parasols and so forth in the open part of the park. There was a merry-go-round and a band and a gazebo. People were frying food on the backs of certain merry-go-round horses. And yet on others, kids were riding. How did they know which horses were hot? For now, there was still snow, but snow couldn't last long in this bomb. Balm. If you close your eyes, that's the end. You know that, right? Hilarious. Alan. His exact voice after all these years. Where was he? The duck pond. So many times he'd come out here with the kids. He should go now. Goodbye, duck pond. Although, hang on. He couldn't seem to stand. Plus, you couldn't leave a couple of little kids behind. Not this close to water. They were four and six. For God's sake, what had he been thinking? leaving those two little deers by the pond? They were good kids, they'd wait, but wouldn't they get bored and swim without life jackets? No, 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 it made him sick. He had to stay. Poor kids, poor abandoned. Wait, rewind. His kids were excellent swimmers. His kids had never come close to being abandoned. His kids were grown. Tom was 30, tall drink of water, tried so hard to know things, but even when he thought he knew a thing, fighting kites, breeding rabbits. Tom would soon be shown for what he was, the dearest, most agreeable young fellow ever who knew no more about fighting kites, breeding rabbits than the average person could pick up from 10 minutes on the internet. 
Not that Tom wasn't smart. Tom was smart. Tom was a damn quick study. Oh, Tom, Tommy, Tomikins, the heart in that kid. He just worked and worked. For the love of his dad, oh, kid, you had it. You have it. Tom, Tommy, even now I am thinking of you. You are very much on my mind. And Jody, Jody was out there in Santa Fe. She'd said she'd take off work and fly home as needed. But there was no need. He, he didn't like to impose. The kids had their own lives. Jody, Joe, little freckle face. Pregnant now. Not married. Not even dating. Stupid Lars. What kind of man deserted a beautiful girl like that? A total dear. Just starting to make some progress in her job. Y you couldn't take that kind of time off when you'd only just started. Reconstructing the kids in this way was having the effect of making them real to him again, which you didn't want to get that ball rolling. Jody was having a baby, rolling. He could have lasted long enough to see the baby, hold the baby. It was sad, yes. That was a sacrifice he'd had to make. He'd explained it in a note. Hadn't he? No, hadn't left a note. Couldn't. There'd been some reason he couldn't. Hadn't there? He was pretty sure there'd been some... Insurance. It, it couldn't seem like he'd done it on purpose. Little panic. Little panic here. He was offing himself. Offing himself, he'd involved a kid who was wandering the woods hypothermic. Offing himself two weeks before Christmas. Molly's favorite holiday. Molly had a valve thing, a, a panic thing. This business might... This was not... This was not him. This was not something he would have done. Not something he, he would ever do. Except he... He'd done it. He was doing it. It was in progress. If he didn't get moving, it would, it would be accomplished. It would be done. This very day you will be with me in the kingdom of... He had to fight, but couldn't seem to keep his eyes open. He tried to send some last thoughts to Molly. Sweetie, forgive me. Biggest fuck-up ever. Forget this part. Forget I ended thisly. You know me. You know I didn't mean this. He was at his house. He wasn't at his house, he knew that, but could see every detail. Here was the empty med bed, the studio portrait of him, Molly, Tommy, Jody, posed around that fake rodeo fence. Here was a little bedside table, his meds in the pillbox, the bell he rang to call Molly. What a thing, what a cruel thing. Suddenly he saw clearly how cruel it was, and selfish. Oh God, who was he? The front door swung open, Molly called his name. He'd hide in the sunroom. Jump out, surprise her. Somehow they'd remodeled. Their sunroom was now the sunroom of Mrs. Kendall, his childhood piano teacher. That would be fun for the kids to take piano lessons in the same room where he'd... Hello, said Mrs. Kendall. What she meant was, don't die yet. There are many of us who wish to judge you harshly in the sunroom. Hello, hello, she shouted. Coming around the pond was a silver-haired woman. All he had to do was call out. He called out. To keep him alive, she started piling on him various things from life, things smelling of a home, coats, sweaters, a rain of flowers, a hat, socks, sneakers, and with amazing strength, had him on his feet and was maneuvering him into a maze of trees, a wonderland of trees, trees hung with ice. He was piled high with clothes, he was like the bed at a party on which they piled the coats. She had all the answers, where to step, when to rest. She was strong as a bull. He was on her hip now like a baby. She had both arms around his waist, lifting him over a root. 
They walked for hours, seemed like. She sang, cajoled. She hissed at him, reminding him with pokes in the forehead, right in his forehead, that her freaking kid was at home, near frozen, so they had to book it. Good God, there was so much to do if he made it. He'd make it. This gal wouldn't let him not make it. He'd have to try to get Molly to see, see why he'd done it. I was scared. I was scared, Mal. Maybe Molly would agree not to tell Tommy and Jody. He didn't like the thought of them knowing he'd been scared. Didn't like the thought of them knowing what a fool he'd been. Oh, to hell with that. Tell everyone. He'd done it. He'd been driven to do it, and he'd done it, and that was it. That was him. That was part of who he was. No more lies. No more silence. It was going to be a new and different life if only he... They were crossing the soccer field. Here was the Nissan. His first thought was, get in, drive it home. Oh, no, you don't, she said with that smoky laugh and guided him into a house, a house on the park. He'd seen it a million times and now was in it. It smelled of man sweat and spaghetti sauce and old books, like a library where sweaty men went to cook spaghetti. She sat him in front of a wood stove, brought him a brown blanket that smelled of medicine, didn't talk but in directives. Drink this. Let me take that. Wrap up. What's your name? What's your number? What a thing! To go from dying in your underwear in the snow to this. Warmth, colors, antlers on the walls, an old-time crank phone like you saw in silent movies. It was something. Every second was something. He hadn't died in his shorts by a pond in the snow. The kid wasn't dead. He'd killed no one. Ha! Somehow he'd got it all back. Everything was good now. Everything was... The woman reached down, touched his scar. Oh, wow, ouch, he said. You didn't do that out there, did you? At this, he remembered that the brown spot was as much in his head as ever. Oh, Lord, there was still all that to go through. Did he still want it? Did he still want to live? Yes, yes, oh, God, yes, please. Because, okay, the thing was, he saw it now, was starting to see it. If some guy at the end fell apart and said or did bad things or had to be helped, helped to quite a considerable extent, so what? What of it? Why should he not do or say weird things or look strange or disgusting? Why should the shit not run down his legs? Why should those he loved not lift and bend and feed and wipe him when he would gladly do the same for them? He'd been afraid to be lessened by the lifting and bending and feeding and wiping and was still afraid of that. And yet at the same time, now saw that there could still be many, many drops of goodness is how it came to him many drops of happy, of good fellowship ahead. And those drops of fellowship were not, had never been his to withheld, withhold. The kid came out of the kitchen, lost in Eber's big coat, pajama pants pooling around his feet with the boots now off. He took Eber's bloody hand gently, said he was sorry, sorry for being such a dope in the woods, sorry for running off. He'd just been out of it, kind of scared and all. Listen, Eber said hoarsely, you did amazing. You did perfect. I'm here. Who did that? There. That was something you could do. The kid maybe felt better now. He'd given the kid that. That was a reason. To stay around. Wasn't it? Can't console anyone if not around. Can't do squat if gone. When Alan was close to the end, Eber had done a presentation at school on the manatee got an A from Sister Eustace, who could be quite tough. She was missing two fingers on her right hand from a lawnmower incident and sometimes used that hand to scare a kid silent. He hadn't thought of this in years. 
She'd put that hand on his shoulder, not to scare him, but as a form of praise. That was just terrific. Everyone should take their work as seriously as Donald here. Donald, I hope you go home and share this with your parents. He'd gone home and shared it with Mom, who'd suggested he share it with Alan, who, on that day, had been more Alan than that. And Alan... Ha, wow, Alan, there was a man. Tears sprang into his eyes as he sat by the wood stove. Alan had... Alan had said it was great. Asked a few questions. About the manatee. What did they eat again? Did he think they could effectively communicate with one another? What a trial that must have been, in his condition. Forty minutes on the manatee, including a poem Eber had composed, a sonnet on the manatee. He'd felt so happy to have Alan back. I'll be like him, he thought. I'll try to be like him. The voice in his head was shaky, hollow, unconvinced. Then sirens. Somehow, Molly. He heard her in the entryway. Mal, Molly, oh boy. When they were first married, they used to fight, say the most insane things. Afterwards, sometimes there would be tears, tears in bed, and then they would, Molly pressing her hot, wet face against his hot, wet face. They were sorry, they were saying with their bodies. They were accepting each other back. And that feeling, that feeling of being accepted back again and again, someone's affection for you expanding to encompass whatever new flawed thing had just manifested in you, that was the deepest, dearest thing he'd ever... She came in flustered and apologetic, a touch of anger in her face. He'd embarrassed her. He saw that. He'd embarrassed her by doing something that showed she hadn't sufficiently noticed him needing her. She'd been too busy nursing him to notice how scared he was. She was angry at him for pulling this stunt and ashamed of herself for feeling angry at him in his hour of need and was trying to put the shame and anger behind her now so she could do what might be needed. All of this was in her face. He knew her so well. Also concern. Overriding everything else in that lovely face was concern. She came to him now, stumbling a bit on a swell in the floor of this stranger's house. That was 10th of December by George Saunders, and now for the song written in response by Amanda Shires. Amanda is a Grammy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and violin player who began her career playing fiddle for the Texas Playboys. She's performed with John Prine, Greg Allman, and many others, including her supergroup, The High Women, alongside Brandi Carlisle, Maren Morris, and Natalie Hemby, whose first album in 2019 debuted at number one on the Billboard Top Country charts. I asked Amanda what she loves about George Saunders' work. I really like Saunders's fluidity in in writing like how the characters think but also writing in a way that you I just sometimes I just don't know where things are going like with this particular story is just you know you're in and out of different folks's thoughts and like internal and extra I just the, the ease of going in between what you're thinking and then what folks are doing and saying is is I mean, that's always what I loved about about his work is just he makes the characters seem like somebody you know and they feel real 
I don't know. It's, it's just, he's never clunky, and everything is just sickeningly easy to read and also difficult to read in the way that everything makes you want to cry. Here's Amanda Shires and George Saunders discussing art, inspiration, and love over a lifetime. Well, it's so nice to meet you, Amanda. I'm a huge fan. That song just killed me. It was so beautiful, and I, I don't even know what to say about it. As, as a failed songwriter, I'm just standing there with my jaw dropped. So thank you very much. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I, all, all the pleasure is on this side of the uh, microphone. I heard that you write write songs, and you haven't even shared them with me before. I do that sort of as a way of keeping my beginner mind, you know, like, hey, I suck. <laughs> I think a little bit of self-loathing is like an artistic superpower. Seriously, for me, it's because the it's just a way of saying that the first attempt isn't necessarily that great. Uh, and that kind of feeling of, oh, God, I don't want to put some crap into the world. And so you endure, you know, you, you, you go longer than your normal ego would let you, you know. Be, and then in doing that, you find, at least in stories, I don't know if it's true for songs, but in stories, you find a lot of riches, uh, you know, on the day after you thought you were finished and then the day after that and the day after that. So it's kind of a way of abiding with the thing, you know, and if you have a, I would imagine if a person has a normal amount of self-regard, they would quit too soon. You know? I think you just described the whole first part of the, uh, of the, of this call that we had, um, where I talked about working on this song since February, and then I had to just book the studio time to make myself finish it. There's a, there are a lot of really bad attempts, you know, that I have since shredded, so no one will see them should I pass away in the night. <laughs> I, tried, I tried a couple different directions sketch-wise, and um, I think I just needed to think about it and, and get even more nervous and, um, and, really fa- and really just struggle. I just, had, I just have to struggle when it comes to George Saunders. In my line of work, I feel like I can just, you know, it's a, it can just take forever. And the process is, is of like starting with a vague space and then clarifying, clarifying, clarifying. And it's sort of methodical, you know, but from my li- limited for forays in the songwriting, it seems like the, the great ones have an instinct where it, you know, maybe it comes fairly quickly or part of it does or, and, and you know, maybe the more methodical you get or the more rational you get, the more it becomes less of a song, you know, or something. But I, that's the part that I feel like I don't intuitively get. I talked to Cindy Walker about songwriting. She said, you have to write 50 songs and then just throw them all away. After that, you'll probably get one out of 50 that you like. And um, maybe after those 50, you'll like one in 10. Eventually, you'll get songs that just come to you, like out of thin air. Those are the, those are the, like ones you feel like blessed that fall into your face or your soul or whatever because they don't feel like they took so much work but they did take all that work because they took a whole lot of earlier work you know like Amanda in this song when you got to that chorus that is so uh, such a beautiful demonstration of what a song does because it's it's a beautiful line and it's a beautiful melody and you sang the hell out of it and all of it comes together in this thing that gets there's more emotion given off than there should be, you know? That's really mystifying to me. I think the beauty of, of, of writing songs is you can put a lot of the things you don't say in with the music. 
with the with the melody and then the chord setting. So the the you don't have to say so much, you know. Amanda, was it always in her point of view, in the wife's point of view? Was that from the beginning, or is that something you stumbled on? Because that what I thought was really surprising and brilliant. It was one of the like I had uh, three directions where I was gonna. One was where they were gonna talk to each other in the song, like a duet. But then I just just started on that idea, and I thought, well, that's a bad idea. I wanted to hear all sides of everybody in there, but the, the songs, you know, songs are generally three to four minutes long if you're if you're not Pink Floyd. I felt like the the that her her side wasn't um, gone into as much on purpose, you know, because it's not exactly her story to tell but I, I did think that she had a say in it because you know because she does when I wrote the story um I had kind of I couldn't find the ending exactly and I actually at one point shot through to his funeral and I kept looking around and then it was in that moment when I my mind turned to her and I was like oh yeah she, wait a minute she's been up you know since probably 7 30 and she came out to find him gone and there's no note, so she's frantic. And I think her answer would be, as you've so brilliantly found here, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna be lifting and feeding you and cleaning you, but I've been doing that. This is just a continuation of the love that we have. So I thought that was a brilliant, you, you kind of you kind of sussed out the um, the heart of the story really, which was the, the pivot when suddenly he goes and we go, oh God, you know, you love this person and you just really mess with them. Really, at the last minute, you did a really heartless thing, or thoughtless thing, anyway. Sometimes I think a story's best accomplishments are inadvertent, like you don't even realize you did it. And in this case, one of the inadvertent accomplishments of that story is that for all of this, I think their marriage just got better, even at the 11th hour, you know. They're going to be better prepared to face these last few months because of this attempt that he made and the reconciliation that's about to take place. It was one of the first times in my writing when I literally just thought of my wife and just thought, okay, if I was in this situation and my mind turned to Paula, what would I say? And I just literally typed it up. It, there was no very, very little editing, which is unusual. There was this discovery in the end about why shouldn't folks, you know, help me and do what I would do for them. The hope was still there, so... While I love to write a song dark as possible, that it that was so beautifully done that it, it just you couldn't just ignore that part of the story, you know. That was uh, one of those interesting moments where the author and the character are making the same mistake, which is overlooking the wife. So that moment had a little bit of a nice slingshot effect because Eber and I were both doing the same thing. I think that's what my wife would say is, you know, yeah, it, it's going to be a drag, you know, but we've been through hard things together and that's love that, that, you know, so it's not like I'm, I would be asking her to do something entirely foreign to, or, or vice versa. If, you know, if, if God forbid she got sick, it, it's what we've been doing all along with a little more intensity. She's been doing it all along in one form or another. And this is just the, you know, the continuation of their life together. So that was a, a, a beautiful instinct. And, you know, I, I can feel in Amanda's song that, kind of uh, remonstrative sense of the wife saying, who do you think I am? You know, you, I love you, you love me. Don't, why would you think I'm not up to this? It's really beautiful. You know, to really be loved, it can't be heroic, actually. It's, it's mutually heroic. You know, it can't be one person doing all the striving. If you listen to a song multiple listens, that's kind of the beauty of it, I think, is that um, you can find 
new things and new meanings. For me, that's what I like in songs. In, in saying, you know, it was a poetic attempt, I wouldn't call it a try. On first listen, you, you would notice that, that the character is talking, saying those words either inside their own head or out loud. And then, you know, you follow the story and then try to think harder. You would probably wonder, what exactly does that mean? I wouldn't call it a try. But it's basically just telling the truth of the story and then making it broad enough with the, with the with those particular words to make it where it could mean more to an individual for what they want it to mean. Yeah, so there's more than one way to, to understand that line, or you could understand all the ways of the line. I like to do that sort of stuff. I know that Jason does that often, only because he's brought it up. I guess if someone says they're going to write a song about your story, you think, well, I hope it's, I hope it's right, you know. And just within the first few seconds ago, this is beyond right. This is a, a true soulful, soulful expansion of the story and really a, a completely lovely work of art in its own right. In other words, it doesn't, I don't think you have to have read the story to appreciate the song. The other thing I, I noticed was just the quality of her voice was so amazing that it really, um, I don't know, it, it just, it kind of taught me something about songs, I think, you know, and their delivery and how, uh, I don't know how, quite how to say it, but there was a euphoric quality hearing that. It kind of gave me shivers and, um, you know, she, told, she completely embodied that wife in, in, the, in the way that her voice uh, performed. So, so I don't know, I, I'm not very articulate about it, but it was thrilling and it gave me chills and I, I was so um, delighted with it and, and, you know, just grateful, really. Ukulele and, and uh, voice, and I played uh, some fiddle on it and made some wind noises with the, was that with the, pro did we make wind noises with the prophet? I wanted to, to get that, the isolation the, in the darkness that, that um, leads a person to want to make these kinds of choices and then just like pianos you can make happy or sad. In this case, I wanted it to be sad. And um, then I wanted to also make the sonic landscape match it, what my mind's picture of the actual landscape was. You know, freezing cold. I thought for me that um, the ukulele worked for that because it kind of sounds to me like, like rain or sleet or snow or something. And plus, I, I love the way the ukulele sounds, but I tuned it differently than I would normally. And um, then there's, of course, that old Beatles idea. If you can make a song on the ukulele, then it's probably not going to be a bad one. And so I was really thinking, I'm going to have to do this George Saunders song on the ukulele so it doesn't turn out shitty. And then um, that I was wanting to capture like uh, wind noise and, and emotional noise. So that's why I used scary fiddle notes. And then I also wanted it to not be too dark. So I was just trying to capture that what I thought the feelings might be. Great art. The art that I really love is is art that really balances those two things. You know, not just lazily says life sucks because uh, that's not true. It's part true. You know, so for me, this story was one where I finally, you know, I got it to where 
uh, nobody died, <laughs> and also where everybody's a hero. There, there wasn't a bad person in the story. There wasn't, a, as there often is in mine, a kind of malevolent force. You know, both of the, the, the songs that, that you guys did, uh, I, I just felt like, um, you know, it was, it was blissful, really blissful to, and additive. Like, it suddenly made me love my own story more. So I just really thank you for the, the push forward. You know, as we get into our 90th year like I am, Sometimes you don't feel like working, but that song really made me like, ah, oh, there's so much potential for beauty, and so I'm gonna to try to work harder, so thank you. I'm gonna make just make only songs up that are about your stories and your writing, and then that's my new life goal. You'll see. You're my favorite. I can't believe you exist, and I get to be alive in the world where you exist. This is Amanda Shires with her song, You Don't Get to Go. You don't recognize yourself Or the bottles on the bathroom shelf You search for words and curse the hand you got dealt It was a poetic attempt I wouldn't call it a try When you went down to the pond No note to slip cold through thin ice And you don't get to go Out your own way You don't get to choose So just spare me Between you and the kids I've been lifting and cleaning Beating and bending for over 20 years now We might be standing here Looking at the end of our world But there's beauty in knowing The closure you owe to your girls And you don't get to go Out your own way You don't get to choose Don't get to go out your own way. 
don't get to choose what you spare me. I know you're afraid of becoming your own ghost. You're afraid I know, but you don't get to go. You're afraid I know, but you don't get to go. That was Amanda Shires with her song, You Don't Get to Go. Special thanks to Lance Fitzgerald and his team. Audio of this story was excerpted courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio from 10th of December by George Saunders and narrated by George Saunders. The next episode of Songwriter features a story from veteran Jeremy Welch and a song by Jeremy and Maya Sharp written in response. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss it, and ratings and reviews are always appreciated. If you want to support Songwriter, please sign up for a premium subscription on Apple Podcasts. Songwriter is distributed by the American Songwriter Podcast Network, and you can always get early access at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks, as always, to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe.